Well, good morning, church. And I'm kind of blind up here, so if maybe we could get the house lights up, that'd be great. And I could see everyone's beautiful faces. Ah, yes, there we go. Well, happy Easter, happy Resurrection Day. My name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors, and I have the privilege of serving here along with Pastor Mucci and our amazing team. And I'm really excited. As soon as our, our uh, communion time is over at the end of our uh, service, we're going to be doing family dedication. I'm excited. The Thomas family, Sandoval family, the Ronco family, you know, uh, we're excited to be doing this as a church together. It's been a while since we've done family dedication, and I want to welcome your family and friends that are joining us uh, this morning, uh, either here physically, in person, or uh, online. And we want to welcome our online family as they're worshiping with us and listening in. So it's Easter Sunday, right? So we've got to do the, 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 the typical Easter sermon, right? You guys ready? All right, good. <laughs> that felt pretty sincere. Pretty sincere. Um, so let's let's start off. Uh, you know, as I was thinking about the message uh, that that, I, that I'm bringing this morning, and we're going to be in First Corinthians 15, by the way. Our key passage is Acts chapter two. Muchi read that. We're going to be diving into First Corinthians 15. We're going to be looking at that. So if you want to follow along in the Uversion Bible app. But but I was thinking uh, as I started taking notes and writing and praying and just asking the Lord what he wanted me to share, here's some thoughts that came to my mind. The first is this, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is meaningless. Or its significance actually changes everything. Now, why do I say this? Why do I say this? Because I believe that for many Christians, debating the validity, the truth of the resurrection really is not the issue. Most Christians believe Jesus actually rose from the dead. But I also know Christians that believe other weird things. And yeah, the resurrection can feel like a weird thing. If you were walking down the street and somebody rose from the dead in front of you, it would freak you out. It would be weird. I know Christians that believe all kinds of weird things. I know Christians that believe that crystals can heal you. I know Christians that believe that if you write your future dreams on a piece of paper and put them under a pillow, that you can manifest your destiny. Christians believe all kinds of weird things, but that's not my point here this morning. I think the problem is actually much worse. We believe something to be true, but we live as if it has no meaning or significance. We all agree as Christians that Jesus rose from the dead and we have this once a year, we call it the Super Bowl Sunday of the church, of Christianity, right? It's the biggest Sunday of the year. And the problem is not that we believe weird things. The problem is that we believe something to be true, but we live as if it has no meaning or significance. And the problem is there's no middle ground. It cannot be meaningful and change nothing. The resurrection of Jesus cannot be meaningful and change nothing. And if this feels a little bit like an indictment, stay with me, please. Whether you're watching online or here in person, stay with me because my hope is to encourage us to wake up to the reality of who we are as God's people in light of the meaningfulness of the resurrection. My hope is that we don't just hear a typical Easter resurrection sermon, but that it actually transforms us, that because of our identity in the resurrection, it changes everything. Now, if we're going to talk about the resurrection, we have to talk about death. They go hand in hand. We have to talk about this for a moment. And of course, 
uh, in, in dealing with this, you know, I, I thought about the, um, the Pulitzer Prize winning author and atheist Ernest Becker, who in the 70s wrote this book called The Denial of Death. He says the basic motivation for human behavior is our biological need to control our basic anxiety, which is to deny the terror of death. Now why? Why does Ernest Becker say this? Why does he come to this hypothesis? Well, he goes on to say, an awareness of our own splendid uniqueness in that we stick out of nature with a towering majesty, and yet we go back in the ground a few feet in order blindly, dumbly to rot and disappear forever. This idea of death, the fear of it, haunts us like nothing else. And dealing with it is a mainspring of human activity. I think what we can synthesize here is that all human beings feel instinctively their significance. And as far as I can tell, we have three possibilities for dealing with death. The first is there is a secular possibility. There is a secular way of dealing with death. And that says we are to deny its power by ignoring it and distracting yourself in this life. There is a religious possibility of dealing with death. And that is we defy its power by living to some kind of moral code in hopes that something better will be there for us on the other side. And then there is a gospel possibility that it, it says this, that we defeat its power by resting in a champion who actually had the power to defeat it. And so at the first sermon, at the first gathering of the first church ever, we see the Apostle Peter say these words in Acts chapter 2, and we heard Pastor Mucci just read them a second ago, but if you want to follow along again, it says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Here we see at the very origin, the foundation of the church is this historical narrative that our leader, our savior, our Lord is Jesus of Nazareth, a true historical figure who performed many miracles witnessed by many and then crucified as a part of God's plan, but then rose from the dead, defeating his power. Either the resurrection of Jesus is meaningless or it changes everything. And today, on Easter Sunday, April 4th, Believers around the world are gathered physically and digitally to worship and pray and serve one triune God. And at the heart of our identity as Christians is the single truth that Jesus rose from the dead. It is our identity. In fact, as we dive into 1 Corinthians 15, you can follow along. We'll be starting in verse 12. 
Paul tells us, he says this, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Paul is submitting a similar hypothesis here. He's saying that either the resurrection of Christ did not happen, and all of this we believe is meaningless, or it's true and it changes everything. If you call yourself a believer, and if we say we believe the gospel, then that means we are a people of the resurrection. And so what does it mean? What does it mean for us to be a people of the resurrection. Well, as far as I can see in this passage in 1 Corinthians 15, I believe that Paul is making a case for that people of the resurrection are a people of hope, a people of life, and a people of victory. So let's dive into this. Let's look at this. We are a people of hope. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 19 through 22, it says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only... We are all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So <clears throat> our entire understanding and experience of our Christian faith hinges on the truth and the relevancy of the resurrection. It's not just enough for us to say it's true. We also have to see and understand that it's relevant. So what is it that keeps us as believers, as Christians, from um, living as people of hope? Well, I think that cynicism, for one thing, is part of what keeps us from living as a people of hope. Cynicism is a fruit of hopelessness. What cynicism demonstrates is a lack of trust. We're, we're deep. We're deep in a moment where cynicism is the currency of our culture. Amen? It doesn't take much for us to turn on the news or look in social media and to see that cynicism is rampant in our culture. That a lack of trust is the mainstream thought. This is true not only in mainstream secular culture. This is true amongst pastors. This is true in the church. It is hard to trust these days. It is hard to believe in other people these days. It is hard to understand what God is doing these days. To be a people of hope is to trust in the sovereign plan of God. To believe and to know that God is always working out his plan. I grew up in the church and as a kid, our church used to do these missionary uh, Bible weeks. And we'd come to church every single night of the week. And we had these different missionaries that would present and because we would listen to missionaries tell their stories from all around the world, we used to read stories about famous missionaries around the world. And 
one of the, the stories that stuck out to me so much was that of uh, Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. Jim was martyred uh, for sharing the gospel. And his, uh, his widow who survived him, Elizabeth, tells this story how one day she was visiting a sheep farm in England. And she noticed that the sheep farmer was doing something kind of strange. He would, you know, you know, she was, he was herding all of these sheep into this tiny little pen. And he was taking the sheep one by one, picking them up, and he was drowning them in this giant vat of chemicals. And she later came to find out that the sheep get these parasites on them and that if he doesn't do this, they can become very sick or even die. And so as she's watching this sheep farmer drown, basically drown these, these poor sheep in this vat of chemicals to, to get rid of the parasites, she began to think and wonder what would it have been like to be a sheep in that moment. What if they could think? What if they could communicate? They'd probably say something like, I thought the shepherd cared about me. Why is this shepherd trying to kill me? And she realized that this is somehow how we act towards God because the sheep did not realize that the shepherd actually cared so much that he was willing to put them through that to actually rescue them from, from what would come if he had not done that. You and I feel like we're drowning sometimes in this life. And hopelessness begins to creep in from all different ways. Whether it's through our marriage, our job, our health, our children. You and I could grab a cup of coffee and I'm sure we could tell stories of suffering and pain and agony. But the, what the resurrection means for us is that there is hope. That the shepherd is not killing us, but he is healing us. And that because of him, we will live and we can trust him. We are a people of hope. But we are also a people of life. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 32 through 34 says, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. If the resurrection has no meaning, if it's not true, then throw caution to the wind. Live it up. Do what you please because this is as good as it gets. This is as good as it gets. But because we know the resurrection is true, and our identity is firmly founded in it, that means we are a people of life here and now. That means we choose to live a life in light of the knowledge of God and in pursuit of holiness. Why do we need the resurrection? I mean, let's just ask a super basic question. Why do we need the resurrection? Because death is real. And why is death real? Because it is a consequence of sin. If you don't know the story, God created Adam and Eve perfect and beautiful and whole. This is what we come to know as a Hebrew word, shalom, universal wholeness and delight. They were perfect. But they sinned, they rebelled, they disobeyed God. And the consequence of that is death. And just like the passages that we've been reading, sin and death entered by one man, Adam. 
So if we're a people of the resurrection, then why do we settle for a life of sin? Why is it that we choose to identify with death more than to identify with that of the resurrection? Paul urges us to wake up and see that when we deliberately pursue sin, we are actually pursuing death. But we are a people of life. I love this quote. You may have heard it by C.S. Lewis. He says, We are a half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I was a youth pastor for about 15 years, and one of my youth pastor friends that was leading a youth ministry in inner city Dallas told me a story one time when him and his buddies, they were, they were in college at the time, and they had this kid in their ministry who had never eaten at a restaurant other than like McDonald's or Burger King. Like his only restaurant experience was that of fast food. And so they, the friends got together and they thought, man, wouldn't it be cool if we could pull our, pull our money together and we could take this kid to a five-star restaurant and let him order anything off the menu? What an experience. This kid, all he's ever known is like cheeseburgers and french fries. But what if you could have filet mignon or lobster? And so they pulled their money together. They approached this kid and said, hey, buddy, we want to take you to the best restaurant in town. It's on us. We're going to pay for it. We're even going to buy you a nice suit. And we're going to, so they got him this nice suit. They all got dressed up, and they took him to the super nice restaurant. And they got there, and they got all the menu, and the waiter brings the bread to the table and pours all the water. And everyone's looking at the menu like, oh, what are you going to get? What are you going to get? And a minute goes by, and two minutes goes by, three minutes goes by, and the kid takes the menu, and he puts it down. His head's kind of hanging low. And my buddy, he looks at the kid, and he goes, hey, why, why, what's going on? What's going on? What are you going to get? What are you going to get on the menu? You want some help picking something out? He goes, no. He goes, he goes, I don't really want anything on this menu. Every, all the guys are looking at each other like, what? You don't want anything on this menu? Anything. No price is too high. Filet mignon, lobster, whatever you want. And the kid says, well, what I really want is... Happy Meal for McDonald's. And everybody looks at him and says, no, 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 no. You don't want a Happy Meal for McDonald's. You want filet mignon or lobster. And so he kind of starts to get sad and tear comes down his eye. And, and they're like, oh, okay, okay, okay. So one of the guys goes and buys him the Happy Meal, brings it back. And while everybody else is eating filet mignon and lobster, he's sitting there with his Happy Meal. But this is what it's like for us sometimes. Jesus is offering us life, but we settle for death. Jesus is offering us the fullness of life, but we settle for a life that looks like that of death. The scripture tells us that we're also a people of victory. 1 Corinthians 15 54 through 58 says, When the perishable puts on imperishable, 
And the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that, the Lord, uh, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Victory is both done and doing. It's done because Jesus rose from the dead and conquered sin and death once and for all. It is doing because we are still laboring, abounding in the work of the Lord. Now, if I can clarify for, for us this morning, the resurrection did not happen so that our political parties could be saved. The resurrection did not happen so that our cultural preferences could be preserved. The resurrection did not happen so that our religious or denominational preferences could be observed as well. No. The resurrection happened so that the glory of the Father could be experienced through the Son by the killing of death once and for all. We are a people of victory so that we can grow a people from all people passionate for God. Now, I don't go around reading dead poets, but I heard this quote one time from a 17th century poet named George Herbert. He says this, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him just a gardener. The resurrection is not meaningless. It is glorious. And because it is glorious, we can live a life as people of the resurrection, free from the trap of sin, free from the curse of of death, free from the tyranny of hopelessness, free, from, free to be everything God has called us to be in this life and the next. And I wonder, church, if anyone here at the brook, if we have Christians here at the brook who are living in light of this glorious resurrection, I wonder if there are people in this church, what it would look like, what kind of a difference could we make in our city if we lived in light of, a, of this glorious resurrection? I know that today is Easter Sunday. <laughs> That's a given, right? But every day is a resurrection day for the believer. It, clearly, today is Easter Sunday, but every day we are the people of the resurrection. Yes, today is Easter Sunday, but every day we are a people of hope, a people of life, a people of victory. I heard Tim Keller give a sermon one time. He's a pastor in New York. Um, he gave a sermon one time on Hebrews chapter 2. And he highlighted something very interesting in this passage. He talks about this interesting word that's in that passage. And, and you may have heard it. It's this, it's, this, it's this idea of he was the pioneer and the perfecter of faith, talking about Jesus being the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. And the Greek word there that we see for pioneer is archagos, which means champion. This is the passage. It says, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the Archegos, the champion of their salvation, perfect through what he suffered. He, too, shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death and free those who all their lives have been held in slavery by their fear of death. Okay? So this word, Archegos, is the word that means champion. So if you know the story in the Old Testament of David and Goliath, 
and how they fought each other, they fought as champions, which meant that they fought as substitutes for their armies. So if David won, that victory of the entire army was imputed to them. And his, and, and his victory, David's victory against Goliath, was imputed to the, Isra- to the Israeli army. If Goliath had won, then all of Israel would have been enslaved. In other words, instead of the two armies hacking away at each other, the two individuals fought, and the defeat or the victory of the individual champion was imputed to the people. What's wonderful about this, what's wonderful about this, of course, is that Jesus is the true David. He's the true champion. He faced death, and he fought it, and he defeated it for us. As a pastor, I've done many funerals, and I've spoken to many people on their way to death's door. And I've talked to people who have felt that as death was approaching, that they weren't ready. And of course, we ask, why? Why why do you feel like you're not ready? And they say, well, they say something like, I haven't lived a good enough life. And honestly, they're right. We have not lived a good enough life. They have not lived a good enough life. But the point is, Jesus Christ, for Christians, already met death and has already destroyed its power. Jesus lived the good life that we could not live. He died the death we could not die. He rose from the dead, making it possible for us. He is our champion. Therefore, all it can do is make you more glorious and more wonderful than you are now. The worst thing that can happen is the best thing that can happen. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything because we have a champion who defeated death for us. We see Paul taunting death here, almost like he's making fun of it in 1 Corinthians 15, 55. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Christians have that kind of confidence. We have a new identity, an identity as a people of hope, a people of life, a people of victory. We are a resurrection people to the glory of the Father. Amen. Let's pray. So, Heavenly Father, we, um, it's not easy for us to connect sometimes the reality of who we are in you. We, we can believe it to be true, but it often doesn't transform us. It often doesn't translate into meaningful life. And so, Lord, we come to you this morning and we ask that the truth of the resurrection would be more than just a story that we visit once a year, but that we would see it as our identity and that it would impact the way that we live at home, at our jobs, in our neighborhood, with our family here at the church. Show us, Father, how to be a people of hope, how to be a people of life, how to be a people of victory. You made it possible. We didn't deserve it, but you love us in spite of anything we've done. 
You love us. We are so loved by you. Help us to live in the reality of that. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you, Pastor Jesse, for such an encouraging message um, to hear that we are a people of hope, we are a people of life, and we are a people of victory. We are entering a time in our worship where we have an opportunity to respond and engage. And the two ways we do this is through communion and offering. We give at the brook because it's an act of worship. We also give because it's a way for us as a family to partner together for the gospel. There are a number of ways you can give with us today. You can give on our website, thebrookmiami.org.giving. Um, you can also give on the Version app if you've been following along with us. And if you have a cash or a check, you can use a box that is down here in front when you come up for the communion. And like I mentioned before, we also use this time to respond through communion. As we prepare for communion today, I want us to reflect on the word, one of the words that Pastor Jesse preached on, and that is the word victory. We hear this word used all the time. If you've been watching March Madness, you've seen it on TV, competition. We hear it in the songs that are sing, sung. We've also heard this word used to determine our world's superpowers after a war. This word has the ability to stir up emotions. We have pain for those who lost it. We have joy for those who achieved it. Now, a few days ago, we observed Good Friday, a day where an innocent man, Christ, was arrested and sentenced to death. But before his death, he sat, with, he sat with his closest friends and he shared a meal. And during that meal, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you can proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He was later beaten. He was later hung up to die in front of a crowd of people. After he died, he was placed in a tomb. Now, those of us who have read the Bible, we know the ending. For those of you that haven't, 2,000 years ago, there were people who didn't know the ending. So to them, to see someone that they followed, someone that they preached with, die, it all seemed like, like a lost. But when all seemed lost, he arose from that tomb. He walked out of that tomb with victory over death. So this morning, we ask that you simply put everything out of your heart, out of your mind for a few minutes and seek the Lord in faith expecting that he will meet you where you need him most. In just a few minutes, I'm going to pray, and the band is going to continue to play the song. And if you're a believer, we invite you to come down and take communion. 
And as you come down, we ask you to please come across and come down this aisle. And Kyler will be standing here and he'll hand you the communion. And you'll go back up this way and you'll be able to take communion in your seat. So I'm going to pray. And after I pray, we invite you to come. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to take communion today with our brothers and sisters. Lord, we thank you for your victory and the ability to be able to celebrate that victory. Lord, what you did shows us that there is no challenge too great, Father. There is no pain that is too strong, Lord, that you did not overcome when you walked out of that grave that day. Lord, we thank you for all that you do and all that you continue to do for us, Lord. And we lift all of this up today in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may come down.
Church, this is a time that we consider family dedication. And in just a moment, I'm going to invite three families to join us here on stage as we uh, do the family dedication together. This is, this is full participation for our entire church. This isn't just about bringing these families on the stage. You, as a congregation, as members of our church, participate in this as well. Psalms 127 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. I want to invite the Thomas family, the Sandoval family, and the Rocco family to join me here on stage. Let's welcome them. Give it up for them one more time. So, families, we're going to ask you five questions, and you guys can respond appropriately as you uh, feel led by the Lord. If it's, your, if it's your intention to present your child to the Lord and to pledge yourselves to bring your child up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, please answer as we do the following promises. There's five promises. Do you here this day recognize your child as the gift of God and give heartfelt thanks for God's blessing? Amen. Do you here this day dedicate your child to the Lord who gave him or her? Good. Do you here this day pledge as parents that you will bring up your child in the discipline and instruction of the Lord? Do you here this day ask God's blessing upon your child's life to guide, guard, and direct your child through all of his or her years? Amen. Now, this is the covenant of the congregation. So if you are a member here at the Brook, would you please stand? And I would say, if, you've been, if you're a part, if you call the Brook home, maybe you haven't officially taken the members class, but you are, you, this is home for you. Please stand. Will you members of this congregation be faithful to your calling as members of the body of Christ so that these children and all other children in your midst may grow up in the knowledge and love of him? If so, answer, we do. Amen. 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 All right. <laughs> Sam is here. Sam is our leader for Canvas Ministry. This is our ministry to our children. We're excited. I'm going to say a prayer of blessing, and then Sam is going to close us with a prayer of blessing. Let's pray. If you would, church, would you extend your arms out to these families here? Heavenly Father, we dedicate these families to you. 
Lord, you have chosen this system. You have, you have chosen us imperfect vessels to raise up, to give us a gift of children. And Lord, our children are imperfect too. And Lord, it is hard. But Lord, in that process, there is glory, there is beauty, there is love. And so Lord, we pray for these families. We pray for the salvation of the souls of these children. We pray that you sanctify these parents. And Lord, that together as a church, that we as a church would be faithful to encourage, to edify, to build up, to fight for the good of these kids, of these parents. Help us to be the kind of church where it's safe to be family here and to have problems, to have challenges. It's not cliche to say that it takes a village. This is your design. So God, may you be honored this morning as these parents are honoring you by dedicating the role that they play as parents and that we as a church are dedicating our role that we play as a family, as the body of Christ, to partner with them, to see that their children come up in the knowledge and love of you. Um, hello, everybody. Um, Samantha here at the Brook. Um, hi, families. Uh, I get a unique role um, in all of your lives, um, and it is an honor. Um, we at the Brook and in Canvas find um, raising the little people from a young age in the Word, and so you guys are being provided with um, a family storybook Bible. Um, and I just encourage even at such a young age as this, um, to read through the stories with them. There's pictures um, and, and make it a part of your family. Um, when the babies are back in Canvas, um, we are then doing the same. Um, and so this is a public way of us to partner with you guys. Um, yeah, and so uh, I will pray then for, for, for the babies. Um, Father God, thank you for today. Um, thank you for your grace. Uh, thank you for community, um, family, and, and what that looks like, Lord, to have the opportunity to be an extension, Lord, um, here at the Brook, Lord. I pray for our families, Lord. I pray for big brother Roman, who is helping lead his, his brother Riley, Lord, for uh, Mila and, and um, her role as a big sister with Phoenix, God, for Julian and, and his role with um, Melody. It's so beautiful, Lord, that, that um, these families are growing, God. And so I just pray for them, Lord. I pray that you stir in their hearts at such an early age of, of who you are um, for them to love and, and desire you, for them to, to thirst after you, Lord, that, that we as a brook can uh, support our families in the confusing times, support our families in the fun times, Lord, and, and that they know that, that they have family and support, Lord. I pray for the parents, Lord, for, for just courage and strength, stamina, um, endurance, Lord, to, to run this race well. Lord, that when they fall and mess up, Lord, that their family is able to see um, repentance and forgiveness, Lord, as, as we all do. 
Um, so thank you, Lord, for families. Thank you for, for our babies, um, and may you walk with them. Um, and yeah, bless them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's receive the benediction before we leave this morning. Everyone else, please stand. And we're just doing this family style. It just feels like a big circle, all right? So here we go. The benediction this morning is from Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You may go in peace, families and church. God bless you. Jumps over sadness.